Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Hey, Columbia, so great to see you and all of you who are in the room. We're getting more and more people in the room, and that just brings life and energy. And all of you should think about being here at some point, too. It's time to start uh, finding our way back in. So register and get here. And, man, it was a good Sunday to be in here or out there watching. That blues band's pretty good, Grant. What do you think? Was it fun? Good, good times, good, good times. times. Yeah, I mean, I think we got to hear more from them. We are next week, but, you know, we got to hear more from them in the future. So, Grand, uh, it's good to have you back. I think, what, three weeks ago we did this, I believe. And I got a lot of requests to have Grand back, expect, except almost nobody spelled Grand right. I'm just going to tell you. So they, they called you Grand, G-R-A-N-D, and you're pretty grand, but I don't know, man. And they called you Grand, G-R-A-N. And then a few things, I, it was just totally indiscernible. So Garan, G-H-E-R-A-N. It is a name, it's not a hard name, but it is a name we're not accustomed to. No. So I introduced you last time a little bit. The Saturday night crowd knows you well, but you know, where, from whence cometh the name Garan? So uh, my father's from West Africa, a small, tiny country called Gambia, the whole Senegambia area with Senegal. And my name is from a language that's called Wolof. And my name, Guran, G-H-E-R-A-N, it means to reap the harvest. Reap the harvest. Yep. Come on now. That's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good, you know. I can tell you Jim doesn't mean anything like that. So anyway, that's, that's cool. That's awesome. Well, we've we got to jump right in because we've got a lot to cover here. So we're going to continue to introduce people to the blues. I've been teaching them the history as we've been going. And a lot of people have hit the playlist, which you can still do. It's already updated this morning, so you can hear all the songs that we're going to do today. But today we're going to introduce you to a genre of the blues called gospel blues. And in fact, if you want to hear the blues today, this is where you're going to go to hear it. In many ways, I wouldn't say the blues is dead, but there aren't as many people that play it as once did. And uh, some of the people we've been mentioning, they died in the last, say, 20 years or so. And uh, so the tradition carries on, but where it's most alive today is in the singing of the gospel. So let's talk about this for a moment, Grand, because in a lot of ways, the blues to begin with came out of the music of the black church. Uh, So, you know, we talked about that before, but but why would we say that the blues emerged not just stylistically, but also content from the singing of the black church? Well, it was born out of that sorrow, that oppression that they carried from them day to day, and Sunday was the release for it. Yeah, and yeah, and Saturday night. Saturday so night. We talked about it the last time. <laughs> These artists, they play in the juke joints on Saturday night, mm-hmm. and they, they might not even change clothes. Or shower, yeah. Just, yeah, or just, take a shower before they went to church <laughs> the next morning, and they play it again, right? And, and some churches were against that, but some churches welcomed it in saints and sinners. Yeah, well, I, and I, yeah, whatever. But, I mean, these were the, these were the gifted artists of the yeah. church, too, so, you know, you, you had them in. So the thing is, it comes from the church, and then it, in a way, it kind of goes back to the church. And I think it goes there, Grant. I've been trying to analyze this. How did that happen? And I think it's because the issues raised and the questions asked in the blues cannot be answered in this world. It's the whole Ecclesiastes thing. So people start, they start carrying forward to spiritual meaning. And in some cases, in fact, in many cases, these artists themselves started to find this spiritual meaning and weave it into their their music. So we're going to talk about some of these people. We can't talk about them all, but uh, these are the 
I would say the most significant ones we should talk about. So first one we're going to talk about is Blind Willie Johnson. There are two Blind Willies, so keep it straight. So Blind Willie Johnson, born in 1897 in Texas. Texans, Grand, I'm, giving, I'm throwing you another bone here because Blind Willie Johnson is pretty important. Some people call him the father of the gospel blues because uh, he was earliest kind of a way maker. His style of music was really interesting. Um, his father was a sharecropper. Uh, his mother also, she died when he was four years old. He never knew her. Um, uh, when he was five years old, his father gave, made and gave him a cigar box guitar. Cigar box. I mean, this is just like a homemade instrument. And Blind Willie Johnson, uh, who uh, wasn't blind from birth, as I'll tell you in a moment, but pretty soon was, uh, he began to find his way in playing that little guitar and then eventually worked his way up uh, to something different. Uh, so he was blinded by his stepmother. His father remarried. She was what we call a rounder. Uh, that is, uh, she couldn't seem to hold herself to one man and certainly not to Willie's father. And so uh, he confronted her one evening about her infidelity. There was a huge fight. And at the end of that fight, uh, having been roughed up a little, I think, by Willie's dad, she took it out on on Willie, and she threw a lie into his eyes, which is not an unheard of story in, in that time. And from that point on, about the age of six, I believe, uh, he was blind from that, from that point and became known, in fact, as Blind Willie. He was an evangelist, a street preacher. Uh, he was a missionary Baptist, if some of you are familiar with that kind of vein of Baptist uh, life. And so he would stand on the street corner and he would preach and uh, he would sing uh, in Texas and beyond. And, and he, had, he developed an a, a, a interesting style, which Garan's going to show you. We call it chest voice. Um, uh, you'll hear this in other blues singers. Chest voice has a, a kind of a guttural feel to it in a way. It, it's visceral. It comes from somewhere deep inside. And he was a master on the slide guitar, which you just got to hear, hear in that piece. And so um, we've chosen one of his most uh, popular songs, one of his most famous songs, which is called Dark is the Night. And cold is the ground. So, um, Garan, show us how that sounds. So this song, um, it was more of a, a lot of moaning in the song. A lot and of moaning. In fact, if you take the whole song, the front and the back of it, it's just the middle that's a few words, and the rest of it's just moaning, moaning. So demonstrate what that sounds like. Dark was the night, cold the ground, on which the Lord was laid. In his sweat, it dropped like blood and rained down. So he plays it on an open chord, which is just like playing the same thing. Now on the guitar, you can pick off a few more notes and everything. But it's just, he tells the story of pretty much the crucifixion in the song. Yeah, Gethsemane, and then he moves to the mm-hmm. crucifixion. And, you know, the word, it's like two paragraphs of song, and then, and then he starts moaning again. If you listen to the song, too, he moans at the beginning, and he moans, he moans more sadly at the end. He's contemplating Gethsemane. He's thinking about Jesus suffering, and he's thinking about the cross. And it's a, it's a powerful telling of the story. So, so we can move from that to Reverend Robert. Reverend Robert Wilkins, arguably the most famous, other than Rosetta, arguably the most famous uh, gospel blues singer of all time. 
Uh, Reverend Robert was born in Mississippi um, in, uh, in 1896. Uh, he's a Delta boy. He's, uh, he's half Cherokee and half African-American. Uh, so really an interesting guy. One of the most versatile of all the blues artists. He could cross genres easily. He could play ragtime. He could play blues. He could play gospel. He could play something we would almost call pop or rock and roll uh, today and sometimes did. His home uh, in Mississippi was only 20 miles from, or 21 miles from, uh, from Memphis, Tennessee, and that's where he made his name. He would, uh, he would go and play in a jug band, and if, you, if you're interested, you might want to get into a little jug band music, sort of interesting stuff to listen to. And he became really popular. The band he was in became popular. He became known as the key singer in that band. And all was uh, okay until 1936, which is a long time. He was 40 years old. And uh, in 1936, in Memphis, his, uh, his band played uh, a gig. And after the gig or during the gig, sometime in the course of the evening, there was a horrific fight. And, uh, and he saw, did Robert Wilkins, a horrible murder, a horrible, brutal murder. And it rocked him to his core. He went into deep despair and depression. He stopped playing music quit the jug band, quit completely playing music. He found or he rediscovered Jesus, we should say, because all these people grew up in the church, every last one of them. You can't find one who didn't. So he rediscovered Christ, and uh, he, was, he was dramatically saved in that moment. And in fact, uh, he became known as a preacher, and he was ordained as a, as a Baptist preacher. And so he preached for a while, and then, as happened in the case of some of these people, it was pointed out to him that he was probably wasting a gift. And so he picked the blues back up again, but he gospelized them. He brought the story of Jesus into them. And Reverend Roberts' uh, songs are interesting. They're long, for one thing. And the reason they're long is because every one of them is a sermon. So his most famous, I think, probably his most famous is a song called The Prodigal Son. And it is from beginning to end the story of The Prodigal Son. No way you could sing the whole thing. It would take up the whole time. But it's like he's preaching and singing at the same time, and he's got his own unique and kind of smooth style. So tell us or show us what Reverend Robert sounded like in his day. So this song, Prodigal Son, tells a story. It tells it from the beginning to the very end. So it says, And his father stood there and called the family around. Called the family around. His father stood there and called the family around. Father stood there and called the family around And that would be the way for us to get along He said my son was lost, but now he's found But now he's found, but now he's found My son was lost, but now he is found My son was lost, but now he's found Now he's found, now he's found And that would be the way for us to get along now, this tagline, that's the way for us to get along, became Robert's message, became Reverend Robert's thing. So it shows up, he, there's a song called That's the Way to Get Along. It shows up in a lot of his songs. So his idea here is that the way to, to relish life is to find the way of God, is to find the will of God. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about uh, today. So now we're going to turn to your favorite. And in fact, the, this train was uh, Sister Rosetta. Uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, arguably, certainly the most famous uh, gospel blues singer of, uh, uh, who is female. 
uh, but maybe even rivaling Reverend Robert for, for fame. She just was, was really well-known even in her day, and some of these people weren't well-known in her day. Uh, she's born uh, in Arkansas, as you can see, to two cotton pickers, to a cotton-picking family, and uh, she was raised in the Church of God. So she's the Pentecostal among these. And man, if you'll watch her, you can actually see her play some places. If you listen to her, you see the Holy Spirit Pentecostal thing coming out. She stomped her feet. She yelled, she screamed, she hollered, whooped, and raised her hands. And even the style of music that she played is something totally different than what we've seen before her in gospel blues. Uh, She was married, uh, in fact, her name was Atkins before she was married. She married a preacher. She didn't stay married to him long. It's hard to stay married to a preacher, Grant, hard. So she was difficult, you know, and it only, but his name was Tharp, and that's where she took her name, Sister Rosetta Tharp. She was married several other times, I'm afraid, in her life. But she always stayed Sister Rosetta Tharp. Now, uh, she played the electric guitar, and that's, that's a significant shift. And she used a lot of innovation and distortion in the way she played it. And so she, of all these singers, is the one who rock and roll artists tend to hearken back to. So you hear Eric Clapton sing her stuff, sing about her, uh, talk about her. Uh, But uh, no fewer than these people and more. Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Tina Turner, Mahalia Jackson. All these people said that Sister Rosetta Tharp was the inspiration for the music that they sang. So you can see how important she was, how seminal she was, and man, she's got her own style. Now, her most famous song is Rock Me, and it is a magnificent song. So listen, folks who are in this room, you're going to want to clap along or something to this song because it's, it's got a rhythm. So let's hear it. words that I'm saying why don't you wash me with my soul with the water from on high oh all the world loves loves around me even forced to buy me but won't you if you leave me I will die why don't you hold me in the bosom till the storms of life is over why don't you rock me in the cradle of our love? Why don't you feed me till I want no more? Then take me to your blessed home above. Oh, won't you hold me in the bosom till the storms of life is over? And won't you rock me, rock me in the cradle You know, Sister Rosetta, I mean, even when she's singing about sad stuff, which she really isn't in Rockby, but she does sometimes, she sounds like she's excited about it. So it's kind of a different genre of this, and it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a synthesis of a number of kinds of uh, music. Really important artist, and you may really enjoy listening to a lot of her stuff, and there is a lot out there of her stuff. 
The last one is not the oldest. We've kind of moved forward in time until we're going to go back to the Blind Willie era where there are two Blind Willies. And so this is the second one. Uh, This is Blind Willie McTell. And uh, he was born in 1898, and he was born in Georgia. And we don't, we don't have too many blues artists born in Georgia, but he's, uh, he established a type of uh, blues that's called the, the Piedmont blues. He's a really fascinating guy. Piedmont blues was sort of more, is smoother. It doesn't have quite the, 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 the rhythmic kind of a feel, and yet the way he played a 12-string guitar in a syncopated fashion had its own style of rhythm. So you can hear this is really different. He's held up as inspiration by the Allman Brothers. The Allman Brothers said that uh, Blind Willie was the most important artist that they learned from. And Bob Dylan, he was the role model for Bob Dylan. So if you love Bob Dylan's uh, music and you know it was really important to a particular era, he got a lot of his inspiration from Blind Willie McTell. Now, Blind Willie was blind from birth. We don't know a ton about his childhood, actually. But uh, he was blind his entire life, which I think... Um, comes with its own pain. And so he, he, you can hear pain in his music, and that's why we've chosen this song to share with you, and it's going to get us into the mood of Ecclesiastes, and it's, ca- it's called I've Got to Cross the River Jordan. So listen to this song. Across that river Jordan, Lord, I gotta cross it for myself. Oh, said nobody here can cross it for me. Said, Lord, I gotta cross oh, it for myself, and I gotta meet. My dear old Savior, and I gotta meet him for myself. Oh, oh, nobody, nobody, nobody can meet him for me. Oh, and I gotta meet, gotta meet him for myself. And I gotta meet mm, my dear old mother. And I gotta meet her, meet her, meet her, meet her for myself, for for myself. Nobody, nobody can meet her for me. And I gotta meet her, meet her for myself. You guys, when you listen to this music, you'll see just how well... uh, Garand emulates their voice patterns, and I, I mean, it's awesome. So you, in, you'll enjoy getting to know this music, I think. We've been talking about the void, the quest, and the destiny. So we've been, we spent a couple of weeks talking about the void, this huge hole in this human soul that desires eternity, that wants something that is of spiritual value, but doesn't know better than to look for it in the world and, and can't really find it. So there's this enormous void we all have. And then there's the quest. And so in a sort of a, a fashion of, uh, of stream of consciousness, uh, uh, Ecclesiastes and Solomon uh, Kohelet move into this sort of examination of everything that we can search in life and not find will fill the void. And so all these human accomplishments, all these human acquisitions, all these ways of being in the world and not find meaning. So we spent two weeks on the quest. And last week we started to think about the destiny. And that 
that's where it gets a little bluer than before, but it's what tempers the whole thing. So the first piece of the destiny is when, is when Solomon talks about death as an absolute reality. That is, it's going to happen. It's unavoidable. It's part of every existence. And, it, and basically, I said last week, it sucks. It's really hard that it is. It's a hard thing for us. And this week, as we conclude his search, his stream of consciousness uh, delving into the destiny, we think about death not just as an absolute reality, but also as an emergent reality, as something that is always coming on us and always to us, and our bodies are declining all the time, and from the moment we're born, we begin this movement toward that. It's a part of who we are before it becomes an absolute uh, reality. I told you last week that his sort of conclusion to this point is live virtuously in the moment, honor God, and find joy in every day. And he's going to continue that theme in the context of this emergent death that's coming on us, this sense we have that we're dying with the world, that that we're going the way of all flesh, as we say. So in Ecclesiastes 11, uh, 8, he says, and by the way, I'm going to pick and choose verses from 11 and 12 and move them into a different order to get us out of his stream of consciousness and into something that kind of makes sense. So he says in Ecclesiastes 11:8, however many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all, but let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Now, I kind of said when I wrote my notes this week that some of you have read and some of you are studying today that this kind of statement doesn't make sense to a lot of people in our culture, in the way that we speak, and, and that we have to think about it a little because it's, it's like he's saying, isn't it? Look, you're not going to live very long. And, uh, and by the way, really dark and hard times are coming and life is going to be really, really difficult and it's meaningless anyway because you're not going to find eternal meaning in this world. So have fun. Enjoy it. And that seems like a non sequitur in a way. But if we'll follow this rhythm of Ecclesiastes, this groove of Ecclesiastes, it will make some sense to us. And I'm going to tell you it's consistent with the teaching of Scripture, which is, in essence, be freed from the notion that you can produce significance or produce eternal meaning in life or even that you should expect to find it. Be freed from that and therefore just accept life like it comes to you. Try to understand its eternal significance. You can't find it, but life has eternal meaning and eternal significance Receive it as it comes and learn to be joyful within it. That's the message of Ecclesiastes as we get to the end. In fact, Solomon's going to say here, and this would have been something he wished he knew when he were younger, because he, he didn't honor God his whole life, as I said last week, and he, he didn't find joy early in life. And so he's going to say as an old man, don't waste any time waiting to be happy. Just uh, in your room where you are or where you're sitting right now, turn to your neighbor and say to them, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Decide to be happy today. And, you know, life is what happens while we're waiting for it to begin. That's the old expression. And what happens is that when we're young, we always think, when this happens, I'll be happy. When this happens, I'll be happy. And what happens to us is that some of those things never even happen. So we we don't get them in our lives. Perhaps there's the person who says, I'll be happy if I find the person I'll marry, and then they don't marry. Well, they've waited for something that 
wasn't going to happen or when I have a child or when I get the job I want or fill in the blank, whatever the the thing is. But the other truth is that when we do get those things, they're never eternally satisfying in the way that we thought they would be. They never fill the void. And so if we keep waiting, then we get to the end of our days, we look back and we go, wow, if I knew then what I know now, I could have been much happier. The way he says that is, you who are young, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9a, you who are young, be happy while you are young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. These are good times. Appreciate them for what they are. He continues to tell us to apply our full energy to worthy endeavors, even though we won't find eternal significance in them, yet we should invest ourselves in virtuous things. So the first half of Ecclesiastes 11, in a way, is a section that is sort of proverbial, and I'll read a piece from that in a second, but its context is what comes after in chapter 9 and 10, uh, chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart, cast off all your troubles from your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Again, it kind of feels like a non sequitur, but let's think about this carefully. You're being given permission here to follow your passions. You should... Follow things that bring joy to you. Chase things that bring comfort and peace to you. And you can't expect they'll bring you eternal significance and meaning, but you're not supposed to be a killjoy. Nobody said that you have to make yourself miserable and unhappy to be a follower of God. God is anticipating, he has has made you, he's wired you to find passions in life and to pursue them with one caveat. And that is to keep in mind God's judgment as you do. So those things must be things that are virtuous. They're things that are wholesome. They're things that build health for others and for yourself. They're things that live out life the way that God has designed it to be lived. And if we live life that way, then we are free to cast off our troubles, which we will have, and to find vigor and meaning in the, significant, in the insignificant lives that we live. It's, it's a non sequitur, I know. But the freedom here is to understand you can't produce eternal significance. Don't expect to. Therefore, go after virtuous things that please God and that help you to enliven the passions that God has given you just to be alive. In the early part, that proverbial section, he says it this way. Ship your grain across the sea, verse 1 and 2. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. No, no, in in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. So invest well in your life. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Try some things, experiment, be innovative, find the paths that bring you the greatest joy, even though they cannot produce eternal significance. In fact, uh, in Ecclesiastes 11, 
and 12, I'm going to combine some verses, verses here that really start to get us to the heart of Ecclesiastes and the essence of what is being taught. Now, before I do, let me warn you. One big mistake that Christians make when they read a book like Ecclesiastes, I find, or like Lamentations or something else that's tough to read, is to impose what they already think, their bias, if you will, on the book, and then to find a way to make the book make sense. And in Ecclesiastes, if you have sort of a punishment and reward sense of life, that is, if you really buy into the myth that the good will be rewarded in this world and the bad won't, and somehow, though, all facts prove that wrong, If you buy into that mythology to make this book work, what you have to do is jump first to the end. And you have to interpret what Solomon says in a particular way and then go back and sort of be baffled by the rest of it. So it's a mistake to do that, and that's what I've kept us from doing. We started and we worked our way through. But that said, the teaching at the end of the book does contextualize the rest. And we start to see what Solomon is really wanting to impart to us. So I'm combining here 11.5, and 12.6 through 7 so you can see it. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that all these things God will bring into you into judgment. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the will broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now what do we discover here? Eternal significance is elusive because God's ways are mysterious. We will not find eternal significance in this life, but life is eternally significant. Why? Because God created it for ways that are a mystery to us, uses it in ways that are a mystery to us, and is honored by it in ways that are sometimes a mystery to us. Because it belongs to him, it is eternally significant. And we get this sense that on the other side of Jordan, when we get there, we'll somehow understand things that are elusive to us now. What we see dimly, we'll see fully. Now, I think about numbers of New Testament scriptures, but don't you read this and think that Jesus might have had it in mind? When he spoke to Nicodemus, as recorded in chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, Nicodemus, you're not going to discern what God is doing fully. God is knowable, but his ways are a mystery. And so he's saying, we sense that God is moving because we see the evidence of the wind. We trust it. We put our faith in it. We believe in it. Even though we cannot fully understand, more to the point, we remember. Now, this is my favorite part of all of Ecclesiastes. And this is my favorite part of this section. Remember what I just read. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember him before life comes to a close. Remember, remember, remember. 
In the next section, when we finalize, he's going to use a different way of summarizing this. But for right now, let's stick very quickly with this idea of remembrance. The Hebrew word is zakar. That word is used all over the Old Testament. It can mean remember your sins, remember who you are, remember your friends, remember your experiences, remember your distresses. And it can also mean to honor or extol God. And that's clearly the primary meaning here. But I think Solomon has all of these meanings in mind, and I think what he's talking about is what we might call mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is a word that's used in many religious expressions and even in New Age, and it's misused. Mindfulness is though I become mindful, I'm just one with the cosmos, or mindful that I'm at peace with the people around me or at peace with myself. That's not what Solomon is talking about here. He's looking back on his life, and he's, he's wishing He had remembered God earlier on. He did not. He's wishing he had been mindful of the presence of God, the will and the way of God earlier on. He's saying, be mindful of God. And to my thinking, that's an awful lot like what we call in the New Testament gratitude. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25, remember this. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread when he'd given thanks, and he took the cup, which is like Ecclesiastes, eat and drink and find the joy in that. And when he broke the bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, and after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What do we call this feast? We call it Eucharist, Thanksgiving, because when Jesus was singing to his apostles the blues of his death, when he was singing to them the blues of the cross at the last supper, he gave Thanks to God, Eucharisteo, thanksgiving no matter what. And to me, Zakar and Eucharisteo, remember and gratitude. They're very much the same thing. So think back to where we were in the fall. Mindfulness equals gratitude, which makes the scripture that we looked at in the fall all the more meaningful in this context. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with the art of, with the instrument of, thanksgiving, Eucharisteo, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see this mindfulness, this remembrance of God? I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Oh, friends, do you see the symmetry of the word of God? Is this not essentially the same message that Solomon is seeking to impart in Ecclesiastes. Life cannot yield eternal significance, but life that honors God is eternally significant. So here's the poignant poetic part of this section we study today. 
I told you that Solomon is thinking about the way that death is not just an absolute reality, but an emergent reality, an impingence on life. It's something that we constantly live with. And in that context, he writes some awesome poetry about getting old, about aging. And we're always aging. And some of us are getting old enough to know it. We can't escape it anymore. And his message is this, essentially. As you remember your creator, also remember that you're a creature. You're a mortal. Remember what you can control and what you can't. Remember to receive life with gratitude because you didn't create it and you can't control it. So in chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, he says in essence, listen, this is, I'll give you the interpretation so it'll help you a little bit. Your eyes are going to stop working well. Your hands will begin to tremble. Your legs will become weak. Your teeth will become soft and dull. Your eyes will become blind. Your ears will become deaf. You'll find it difficult to sleep. You won't enjoy music or other arts as much anymore. You'll be more fearful. Your hair will turn white if it don't fall out. You'll be less vibrant. Your desire and passion will ebb, and then you will die. And he wants us to remember this. So we remember what is really of significance and really important. But let me read it to you poetically, the way he wrote it. So, Grand, this is a blue note, man. This is a blues song. So, so play some blues for me. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop when the grinders cause and cease to become well they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades when people rise up at the sound of the birds but all the songs have grown faint when people are afraid of heights and of the dangers in the streets when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire is no longer stirred within then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about in the streets remember him Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Remember him. Oh God, you are eternal and we are mere mortals. You are the creator and we are your creatures. 
And we live not only with the absolute reality of the end of our lives on this earth, but we live with the constant impingement of decline. We are dying with this world. We are going the way of all flesh. And we will live a limited number of days on this earth in which we will strive and search for eternal meaning and not find it. And that will point us to you. We will recognize that though we can't produce significance, life as you have created it is significant. We will discover that you are the only eternal hope. You are the only eternal meaning. We will walk through many dark and difficult alleys in our life, Lord. You've promised us you will walk with us. We will find many things to be meaningless. But in the midst of it all, we will learn to be contented. We will learn to pursue things that, that our passions point us to. We will learn to find joy. And we will learn to give up on what we cannot control, trusting you for that, and use what you have given us well, investing in things that are virtuous and right and true. We will remember you, O oh Lord. We will remember you when you're young, we are young. We will remember you as we approach middle age. We will remember you when we are old. We will be mindful of you forever because we will spend forever with you basking in your glory. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been great to be with you. I love you. I miss you. I pray for you all the time. Grand, thank you so much for being with us today. And to all of you, you go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. We'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.